Noreira, I will start our uh, tino korero with a paku karakia. Noreira, kia tau ngā manakitanga a te mea ngaro ki runga ki tēnā ki tēnā o tātou. Kia māhea te hua mākehikehi, kia toi te kupu, toi te mana, toi te aroha, toi te reo Māori, kia tūturu, ka whakamaua, kia tīna, tīna. Huie, tāiki. Tēnā tātou. I ngā mana, i ngā reo, i ngā kārangatanga maha, tēnā koutou katoa. I te kaiwhakarite tō tātou hui, CJ, tēnā rā koe, kōrua kō koe, Neil, nau nei, ahau i whakataki nō reira. I ngā hoa, ngā whanaunga, ngā kaitautoko, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you everyone for coming this afternoon. And uh, thank you for the to the Ministry for Culture and Heritage for the invitation. Uh, also for supporting my book and the launch the other evening. And I'd also like to thank the National Library for hosting us this afternoon. Although Tamihana Teroparaha did not have any descendants, he nevertheless shaped, helped to shape our whakapapa. In 1842, at the age of 20, Tamihana travelled with Martini to Fifi to the far corners of Te Waiponamu to spread the gospel and to make peace with Ngaitahu, a tribe they had been fighting against just a few short years earlier. Bishop Selwyn later wrote how the two cousins voyaged in an open boat more than a thousand miles, sometimes remaining on the sea all night with a compass which had been given them but the use of which they very imperfectly understood. But it wasn't just the ocean that was a hazard. It was, of course, Ngaitahu and the communities that they visited. They must have created a stir everywhere they went. And we can imagine the discussions that went on in, in the different communities and well into the night about whether they should put Tamihana and his cousin Martini to Fifi to death. Tamihana writes in his account of his father's life, Ko te ui kaumai a ngā rangatiro ngaitahu ki au, e kore rānei tō matua e haramai ki te patui a mātou, ki te tango hoki tō mātou whenua. So the question that was asked of me by every chief of ngaitahu was, is your father going to come and attack us and take away our lands? So Tamihana wasn't killed, and he ended up spending about 14 months in Te Waipaunamu in the ngaitahu communities. Shortly after this trip, Te Rauparaha's granddaughter, Ria Te Uira, and Penata Nohoa of Ngaitahu were joined in an arranged peace marriage. The first child of this union, born on Christmas Day, 1845, was Winera Te And their second son, born in 1848, was my great-great-grandfather, Rawari Puaha, also known as Rawari Penata. They also had a daughter named Paranihia. Rawari married Hunietari of the Ngāti Kapu Hapu of Ngāti Raukawa, and their second child was my great-grandfather, Karajana Rawari. And here is the whānau in this photo. Um, so that's Karaitiana or Kara, as he was known, and Edith, his wife, and my grandmother, Karoraina, who was known as Ina, um, in the middle, and her sister, Hana, and her brother, Joe, um, so Kara, 
I've already well, touched on that, married Edith Eden, who was from a Nelson Parker family, and they farmed at Manukau, north of Wautaki, on Cutter's mother's land. They used to call each other mate and matey. So the tradition of peace marriages between Ngāti Tō and Ngāi continued well into the 20th century. Uncle Iwi Nicholson, himself a descendant of a peace marriage, spoke of how there was a responsibility upon the descendants of such marriages to act as takawainga, or go-betweens, and to mediate between the tribes that have been joined in this way. So my first encounter with Tamihana's manuscript was around 1993, while I was studying at the University of Canterbury, and in, in the early stages of exploring my taha Māori. I knew I was Ngāti Tōa and a descendant of Te Paraha, but that was about all. I was in the university library one day when I came across a full set of the Grey Māori manuscripts, copies of the originals held by the Auckland Public Library. As I was running my eye along the shelf, one volume in particular caught my attention. It had Life of Te Paraha, Tamihana Te Paraha, in capital letters running down its spine. I took the, this volume down from the shelf and started looking through it. To my surprise and delight, I found page after page of beautiful handwriting in Te Reo Māori, a language I had only the most basic grasp of at that time. I remember thinking how amazing it would be to be able to read and understand this manuscript, an account written by someone who knew Te Paraha, who understood the world that he lived in and also had witnessed many of the events himself. I resolved to learn Te Reo Māori so that one day I, I would be able to read Tamihana's manuscript. I even remember thinking that perhaps one day I would publish it as a book. He Pukapuka Tātaku i Ngā Mahia Te Rauparaha Nui is a 50,000 word account in classical Te Reo Māori of Te Rauparaha's life. A pioneering work of Māori biography, it is a rich source of Ngāti Tō history, tradition, culture. You can tell that I supplied that blurb to Neil earlier um, in language <laughs> and offers many insights into traditional Māori society and the traditional Māori worldview. Sadly, however, as noted by Adani Loda in her 2013 doctoral thesis, Tommy Hunter has never received his due for authoring this wonderful account. There have been a succession of poor interpretations spanning more than a century, with the, resu with the result that Tamihana's manuscript and his reputation have both been held in very low esteem. It has never before been published in full. Some, some of the history that's in this manuscript uh, makes for uncomfortable reading for us these days. Um, we have to remember that it was a completely different world back then with its code of, codes of behaviour that we... Um, struggle to fully understand today. Speaking to the Waitangi Tribunal, Uncle Iwi describes it in these terms. Nā ko tāo Māori tērā, tā rātou mahi he patu tangata, kai tangata, muru taonga, muru whenua, mahi raupatu, aha ko te wiri wiri, ko tāo Māori tērā me ona tikanga. So, well, that's the traditional Māori world. What they did was kill people, eat people, forcibly take possessions and land, undertake conquests, even though it's unpleasant. That's the traditional Māori world and its customs. I believe that learning about these events allows us to come to an understanding about what happened in the past and just as important, why, why it happened. In order to try to understand this world, Tao Māori Tūturu, we have to put our 21st century Eurocentric worldview to one side, try and get our heads around a completely different universe, the traditional Māori world. In that world, maintaining the mana and tapu of your group was paramount, and utu, which I would translate as reciprocity, 
govern social relations and interactions between groups. If another group gave your group a gift, staged a feast to perform the kind deed, you were duty-bound to return that gift, feast or kindness and ideally take it to the next level. In the same way, if another group committed a crime against your group, the mana of your group depended on addressing this at the earliest possible opportunity. Until you did that, you would have to suffer under a spiritual malaise that could, that could feel quite crippling. Just at this point, um, some people might be wondering about the place of written manuscripts, um, given that we all think of Māori as being very much an oral culture. So why, why even pay attention to these manuscripts? Well, up until the early 1800s, Māori culture was predominantly oral, although visual information such as carving was also important. Early European observers were astounded by the incredible feats of memory that tohunga were capable of. However, the advent of Christianity ruptured the institutions of transmission, such as the whare wānanga, the traditional house of learning, where tribal law was passed down orally to the sons of chiefs. Combined with this was the taking up of literacy by Māori. If you could write things down, you no longer needed to remember them. We, all, we know all about this from the internet. Why remember anything if you can Google it? The younger literate generations of Māori turned to writing in order to preserve knowledge. An unfortunate byproduct of this was that Tamihana's generation lost the ability to commit tribal knowledge to memory. This failing was noted by the Ngāti Tō historian Atanatū Takairangi in his 1881 manuscript. So Takairangi wrote, Koine tūpuna, E kore tai e mātou e ngauri nei te tātaku whakatepe. We, the current generation, are not able to recite all the details of these ancestors. Te kairangi wrote these lines as a kind of excuse as to why he spends the next hundred pages writing down all the traditions. Um, he, he had learnt from his elders, from Tarangi Hayata and Nohorua, that 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 you shouldn't write these things down because you, by doing so, you severed the connection between the instructor and the student. Notice too that Takairangi uses the word tātaku in this, in this excerpt, which means to recite carefully and systematically, and that's the same word that Tamihana uses in the title of his manuscript. So despite the reluctance expressed by these, these earlier ancestors such as Tarangi Hayata, Tamihana, Takairangi and many others nevertheless wrote down their tribal histories, their whakapapa in particular, and their pūrāko. They knew that if they didn't, the information would be lost. So at this point, the written text became part of the mix. So, who was Tamihana Te Rauparaha? Um, Tamihana was born around January 1822 in northern Taranaki during Ngāti Tō's migration from Kāwhia. His mother was Tiako of Tuhorangi, Tamihana was named in honour of Taroparaha's oldest brother, Tarangi Katukua, who had been killed in battle at Takakara shortly before Ngāti Tō's departure from Kāwhia. So Tamihana was known by a short version of Tarangi Katukua, Katu, in the early part of his life. He actually signed the treaty with the name Katu. Tamihana was born into changing times. He was only five years old when Ngāti Tō began having regular contact with European and American ships at Kapiti. Whilst still a child, he accompanied Te Rauparaha on his military campaigns, hence the, the vivid 
eyewitness descriptions, they're a feature of his account of his father's life. At the time of the whole funeral war, when they were only perhaps 12 or 13, he and Ruta were married. She was the daughter of the Ngāti Whakateri chief Tāwhiri, and they remained together for the rest of their lives. At 16, Katu embraced Christianity, and at 17, he and Te Whiwhi o Te Rangi, later known as Martini Te Whiwhi, travelled to the Bay of Islands to fetch the missionary Octavius Hadfield and bring him back to Kapiti. The age of 18, Katu signed the treaty at Tahoro Modia off Kapiti, and at 19, he was baptised, taking the name Tamihana. So you can see just all that change that had happened in his early years, his, his formative years. Tamihana enthusiastically adopted English clothing and manners and technologies, and he established close relationships with many of the influential Pākehā of the day, and was often called in by them to mediate in disputes. Tamihana had learned to read and write when he first encountered the scriptures, and was a prolific writer through, throughout his life, in Te Reo Māori. He tried to learn English at various points, but he never, never learnt more than a few words. In the mid-1840s, Tommy Hunter wrote several accounts for the colonial administrator Edward Shortland, including an account of the wars between Ngāti Toa and Ngāi Tahu. Around this time, Tommy Hunter also recorded a number of whakapapa from his uncle, Nohorua. In late 1845, Tommy Hunter became the first adult Māori student at St John's College in Auckland. And I found this quite wonderful drawing that was in a letter sent by Thomas Collinson to his mother, in November 1846, and at the, the far left, um, you, can, you might not better read the little caption, but it says Martini, and it's got R's cousin in brackets, and then it says Rauparaha, is it Rauparaha or Rauparaha's son, and his wife, so that group of three, the two men standing in Martini and Tamihana, and Ruta's um, sort of squatting next to Tamihana. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because this picture is actually not um, catalogued under Tamihana. It, it was just came, I was actually looking at this archive for something else and I just came upon this, but um, it's quite a wonderful panorama of Auckland as it was in Tamihana's day. Um, so Tamihana was at St John's College in July 1846 when his father, along with several other Ngāti Tōr chiefs, was illegally abducted and detained on Governor Gray's instructions. And in early 1847, with his father held hostage, Tamihana was one of a group of younger Ngāti Tōr chiefs who were coerced by Grey into selling the Wairo and Porirua blocks to the Crown, using Te Rauparaha's freedom as leverage. After Te Rauparaha's release in January 1848, Tamihana worked closely with his father in the building of a European-style town at Otaki with Rangiatia Church as its centrepiece. After his father's death in November 1849, Tamihana saw Rangiatia through to completion. This is quite a magnificent structure. Um, in December 1850, Tamihana travelled to England and spent 15 months living there. According to the New Zealand Spectator and Cook Strait Guardian, this is quite a, this is quite a, um, a long little excerpt from the newspaper, but I just think it's wonderful. And it, I, I think it's actually really accurate. Um, accurately depicts what Tamihana was about. He actually self-funded his trip to England, um, which is quite an unusual thing for a Māori chief to do in that period. Um, Tamihana's chief object in making this visit, which he does at his own expense, 
is to inform himself by personal observation of the wealth, power and grandeur of that country, which has extended its beneficent power and influence over New Zealand. And after having drank at the fountainhead of civilization, to return to the land of his birth and impart to his fellow countrymen the knowledge he has acquired. And so here's a portrait um, that was done of um, Tommy Hunter during his time in England. So he's very much the English gentleman here. Tommy Hunter was impressed by Britain's industrial might and the grand manner in which the ruling classes lived, although he was disappointed at the less than universal observance of Christian teachings. He complained when he saw flower, like beggars selling flowers on Sundays, and he, in his mind, Britain was like a Christian paradise, but the reality didn't quite live up to his expectation. While in England, he wrote an account of his father's life, not, not, not the one in the book, but another one, and also an account of his own life, and both of these were published in Church Missionary Society publications in translation. Um, he was presented to Queen Victoria late in his stay, and he returned to New Zealand in December 1852 with a number of new ideas, including the establishment of a Māori king. He also urged Māori to retain their lands and form a landed class that would sit alongside the Pākehā gentry. And he and Ruta went on to establish a successful sheep farm near Waikanae and built a substantial homestead there. So in the early 1860s, Tommy Hunter actively promoted the sale of the Rangitike Manawatu block to the Wellington Provincial Government. And from 1867, he was heavily involved in the Native Land Court, much of it relating to disputes over that sale of that same block, the Rangitike Manawatu block. So, yeah, in July 1871, Rusa died, and um, they'd never been able to have any children. In 1874, Tami Hana commissioned a Melbourne firm to make the memorial to Toroparaha that still stands at Ōtaki. But um, Tami Hana died before it could be installed. And yeah, so Tami Hana died around 20, the 22nd of October 1876 at Ōtaki, aged around 54. He is buried at Ōtaki beside his wife in an unmarked grave, is my understanding. A big part of Tami Hana's legacy is, of course, the manuscript. But until quite recently, this was held in very poor esteem due to a succession of poor interpretations over the years. The sort of whakapapa I put together uh, gives you a bit of an idea of the, the various interpretations over the last 150 years of Tamihana's manuscript. Um, so at the top we've got Tamihana's manuscript, the Te Reo Māori, um, which is, of course, in Te Reo Māori and was finished around 1869. Um, Travers, got Travers and White form the left-hand branch, and then on the right-hand side we've got um, the George Graham translation and a, a book that followed from Graham. So I'll just quickly go through each of those and just um, treat them each one by one. Um, so, the, yeah, the first to interpret um, Tommy Hunter's manuscript and the only one to do so in his lifetime was the Wellington lawyer, politician and amateur scientist WTL Travers. There's actually not, well, there's no documentation relating to the manuscript, so um, I've had to kind of reconstruct in places what actually, what I think is likely to have happened. So my reconstruction in terms of Travers acquiring the manuscript is that Travers and Tamihana cross paths in the Native Land Court. Travers was a lawyer 
in the second Rangitike Manawatu hearing of 1869, Travers represented Ngāti Raukawa and Tamihana was giving evidence on behalf of Ngāti Tōa. So after meeting, I think Tamihana may have let slip that he'd written a life of his father. And Travers, yeah, Travers, this is kind of, yeah, reconstruction as I say, but Travers, so Travers probably said to Tamihana, oh, you know, that sounds very interesting. I can arrange to have that published for you in London type of thing. And so um, Tamihana passed it over to Travers. But instead of publishing it, Travers wrote his own biographical work that he delivered as a series of lectures to the Wellington Philosophical Society in the second half of 1872, and that he published in book form in 1873. In his work, Travers does at least say that he had obtained a large amount of information respecting the career of his celebrated father from Tamihana. So in many ways what Travers did, uh, it didn't really besmirch the reputation of Tamihana or of the manuscript, in any great way, because he, he didn't sort of make out that it was a version of the manuscript. The only thing he may have done, and we don't really know, is that he probably didn't give the manuscript back to Tamihana. Tamihana probably got unwell, well, he did get unwell around that time, and died a short, few short years later, and so it's quite likely that Travers simply held on to it and then passed it on to George Gray, whose collection it ended up, to, uh, up in later on. So yeah, this is uh, where it gets sort of a bit messy. Uh, John White in 1879 was commissioned by the government to compile the, the multi-volume bilingual anthology, The Ancient History of the Māori, um, drawing on Māori contributors from throughout the country. John White, as an aspiring historical novelist, was an unfortunate choice as the series editor. So when volume six was published in 1890, chapters two to four in both the English and the Māori were presented as if they had come straight from Tamihana's manuscript. And this is just from the NZETC version, but it follows the original very closely. You, you see there it says chapter, chapter two, Rauparaha, and it says written by Tamihana to Rauparaha. Often we are indignant when our tūpuna are not acknowledged as sources in these old works. In this case, it would have been much better for Tamihana's reputation if, if he had not been named. This is because this text does not come directly from Tamihana at all. Rather, the actual source for White's text is that Travers book we saw just earlier. White's working papers in the Turnbull Library, which I've, I've seen, um, show that uh, White literally pasted in um, the pages from Travers' book for the typesetter just to put in. So that's, that's where the English, the most of the English text came from, apart from a few bridging sentences that um, White put in. And then the Māori text is just White's translation of that English text. So it's like, so, like, if you compare the two, if you put them side by side, it, it is almost impossible to find a sentence that's from the original. Um, but, but the thing was, he did put a bit of window dressing. Um, like, for example, that first line, it says, this is an account of the acts of Rauparaha from his birth to the time of his old age. And that's quite similar to the second line of the manuscript. Um, or, or, in fact, the first line. But, but after that, it just diverges. So it's a really dishonest um, piece of scholarship that was never picked up at the time because, unfortunately, of course, Tamihana was no longer around. And um, I've, I've had a bit of a look through old newspapers and no one seems to have um, sort of um, 
called, called White out about it at the time. Unfortunately, so the, the story just gets even worse from here for Tummy Hunter because um, Percy Smith came along in 1910, picked up White's book and just thought, what is this rubbish? Um, but he, he basically thought it was Tummy Hunter's um, uh, work. So um, in, in um, Smith's book, um, he describes Tummy Hunter's, Tummy Hunter's narrative as being very deficient generally and characterised by many inaccuracies. Um, so this is all based on the white version, um, as you can see in, in the references that Smith gives. Um, so this, this particular extract shows it quite clearly. It says, um, Mr. Oh, I don't need to read it, but um, basically it says, as does Taraburaha's son in volume six of Mr. John White's Ancient History of the Māori. And it's funny because he says, um, from which indeed a great deal of Mr. Travers' information is derived. But the, the irony is that um, White just took it from Travers, so it's actually the other way around from what Smith um, imagined. Um, and this is, this is Smith just going on his sort of high horse, you know, Tommy Hunter has to be read with caution, he's often wrong, he's con contradicted over and over again. Um, so yeah, this I, I really think that this Smith um, criticism in Smith has actually it's just hung around. I actually think um, there's actually other writers have come along, read this. Um, I've seen other works too. Um, there's um, another work by Pybus where he talks about how um, it just basically follows Smith's line, and I think that's um, that's been just. The, the general opinion of Tommy Hunter's work that's been out there um, because there's been nothing else to replace it with. So sort of, you know, surely things can't get much worse, but um, yeah, unfortunately. Um, I, yeah, I, I sort of respect, um, respect the approach of my friend uh, Piripi Walker, who's here, <laughs> who um, says we shouldn't badmouth fellow translators. Um, and um, George Graham, um, he, the reason that the translation didn't turn out so good is not just down to his lack of um, skill as a translator, but there's also some other factors um, that got in the way. So George Graham did a number of, um, translated a number of manuscripts in the early 20th century. Um, and he must have approached Tummy Hunter's work with a sense of trying to put it put the record straight himself because he'd seen White's text and known that it wasn't a representation, a fair representation of, of Tommy Hunter's work. But unfortunately, um, the, one, of the, one of the big issues that um, Graham's translation uh, couldn't overcome was the fact that Graham was not able to take the actual manuscript to his home to complete the translation, which was completed during the, the years of World War I. Um, so, the public library arranged for um, a typist to type up the manuscript in like batches of 10 pages and these would be posted to, to Graham's house. And unfortunately the typist just had trouble reading his handwriting, pure and simple. Um, one thing about Tummy Hunter's manuscript is that he does use quite an unusual spelling with a lot of WHs and this, this wreaked havoc with the typist, um, as we'll see in a couple of examples. Um, 
Yeah, so the resulting text um, Purupi has called the guesswork translation, which kind of, um, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of what it reads like. Um, so here's an example of the, um, just just to, so you can see the the type the typist um, struggling. So you've got Ngati Ranui, for example, in the manuscript becomes Ngati Manui, so that's just, you know, can't quite read the, the R and the U. But then, um, so Kotawa Tu becomes Kotana Tu, and then, yeah, Hewehi, so with the way Tamihana used the WH, he instead of writing W, we often put WH, so wehi, that's that word there, W-H-E-H-I, should be wehi, and, but yeah, the, the typist thought, well, what does that look like, fitu. Um, so yeah, in, uh, when, when Graham translated it, so he spoke about Ngāti Mānui, which is kind of strange, because you thought, you'd think he might have thought, well, who's Ngāti Mānui? But, but it's, in, it's in there. And then, um, so then he says, but that, you know, Whilst it rested there, the party of their desire to attack the party and kill them, but they were not able to get into their company. When they rested there, a star appeared. And um, yeah, in Patricia Byrne's biography, 1980 biography, she talks about the star as well, which is quite, quite funny. I mean, not really that funny, but <laughs> quite terrible. Um, so yeah, so the translation basically should be obviously about Ngāti Ruanui and... Um, and so the actual thing is saying, well, you know, they were fearful, so we're here, not, nothing about a star at all. Um, so, yeah, you can see from this that, you know, Graham was just trying to struggle to do the best he could with that, with that typescript. But you would have thought that he might have thought, hang on a minute, maybe I should go back into the library and check, check the typescript, make sure it's accurate. Um, so here's another one which... Um, the, the original manuscript and the typescript are basically the same, so the typists type this up fine. Um, so, yeah, kia hokorima. So that means, well, we'll find out in the next page what that means. Um, and, yeah, the way he wrote to Aitanga Tiki was, was a bit kind of run together, which is just the way that, you know, writers in the 19th century would write things they didn't put in extra little particles if they didn't think they were needed. Um, so if we go through to Graham's translation, Taropuraha um, set out with only five Ngāti tour on his journey. He, and they were all young people. And it's like he's going through enemy territory with five young people. It was just <laughs> a ridiculous um, translation. Um, so in fact, he went with a hundred and they were his finest warriors. So it's, you know, it's like almost the opposite sense. Um, and again, in the Patricia Burns book, um, he talks about the journey with the five young people. Um, yeah. So that's the, um, yeah, we could have a whole talk about the Graham translation, but um, it's not worth it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, in the hundred years since it was completed, this, this translation has been the one that all the writers and historians have referred to, um, including Patricia Burns, as, as I've noted. And uh, yeah, now, now we get to the Peter Butler book, um, which came out in the same year as Tr Patricia Burns' book in 1980. Um, so yeah, Peter Butler's book, the text, is a cut-down version of George Graham's translation. So yeah, it's promoted on the back cover as a unique story of bloodshed, warfare and cannibalism. And in the very brief introduction, Peter Butler notes that Tommy Hunter was certainly no scholar, and the manuscript had to be extensively edited. 
This is just one of a line of people who have come along and looked at a translation and decided that the original writer was the person at fault rather than the translator or the transcriber. Um, so yeah, Pirapi Walker <laughs> in a scathing review published in 1981 in, in the Victoria University newspaper Salient, um, which was called an act of piracy. Um, this, this is a fantastic review. Um, Pirapi said, is knowledge of a rough typescript translation in English sufficient to judge a classical piece of Māori narrative in the tongue of the old people? If Peter Butler were a scholar, then Mr Graham, his only source, would have been mentioned once in his book. And Pirapi actually mounted a campaign that saw this book being taken off what calls shelves, um, but unfortunately it couldn't get rid of it forever. Yeah. So for many years, Pirapi was virtually a lone voice in defence of the manuscript. It was only in recent times that some other commentators had begun to praise, praise it. So Angela Ballara was guardedly positive in her book Toa, which came out in 2003, um, while Henny Collins referred back to the original manuscript for her updated biography of Te Rauparaha Kamati Kaora, which I would recommend to people who want to just get an overall overview of Te Rauparaha's life and that it doesn't have all those errors that are in the Burns one. Um, and in more recent times, Arini Loder has been unequivocally positive and has truly recognised Tommy Hunter's achievement writing in her 2013 doctoral thesis that Tommy Hunter's narrative deserved to re be remembered as the outstanding historical literary work of art of one of our Rokawa Tuoranga Tera Tupuna that it undoubtedly is. So what do we know about the manuscript's creation? Um, there's, as I mentioned before, there's very little documentation. There's no mention in any of Tamihana's surviving letters or in the land court records. Um, Auckland libraries don't even know when it came into their collection. Um, so given this dearth of evidence, a lot of weight has been attached to a note that George Gray wrote and attached, well, someone attached to the front cover. Um, so yeah, the note says history of Te Rauparaha written by his son Tamihana Te Rauparaha at his father's dictation. Mr Travis saw this and published in England a summary of it. Photo of son and wife, G. Gray. So the note suggests that the manuscript was written during Te Rauparaha's lifetime with Tamihana acting merely as a scribe. And it has further been assumed that Gray, whose collection the manuscript ended up in, and who was close to both Tamihana and his father, probably commissioned Tamihana to record his father's story. And as we know, Gray was a prolific collector of Māori songs and traditions who was particularly active during his first term as governor, so that was between 1845 and 1853. Arini Loder, in her thesis, argues pers persuasively for Tamihana to be the author of this manuscript, but not merely its scribe. But in the absence of any hard evidence around its date of composition, she thought it likely to have been written shortly after Te Rauparaha's death at Gray's prompting. The key for me in terms of unlocking the the timing of the manuscript was actually um, a chance remark that Pirapi um, Walker made to me. Um, Pirapi's been like hugely involved in, in the production of this book. He read all my draft trans translations and transcriptions, gave me a lot of feedback from him in a very, you know, learned way and it just, yeah, just like to say a huge thank you to you, Pirapi, for your for your input. This book would not be the same 
without it. Um, and, and in fact, Pirapi was the one that gave me this idea for how I could date the manuscript. Pirapi was looking at a, a whole lot of Tummy Hunter's letters um, for another project that he was involved with. And he just said to me, well, Tummy Hunter's tidied up his writing. And um, it was funny, it was just the sort of thing that kind of stuck in my brain. And it was a reference to the spelling that Tummy Hunter uses in the manuscript. Um, so if we see, here's a page from the manuscript, and you can see I've underlined all the WHs in the manuscript. Um, and they're all places where you'd expect to see a W. So Ngāti Raukawa is spelt Raukawa, Ngāti Awha, Whaikanae, Kāwhai, Takifa. So every, every place you'd expect to see a W. And you think to yourself, well, I, I actually think this is one of the reasons why this manuscript's been a bit kind of held in low esteem in the past, is that people have looked at the spelling and thought, he couldn't even, you know, he didn't even know how to spell. Um, but what this, what this comes back to is, is, is in the early development of uh, written Māori, there was no WH. So when Tamihana learned how to write, he just used a W. And I think, too, that we should keep in mind that today, basically, WH has just become an F. So we've got two very distinct sounds, but the fact that there was no WH at all suggests strongly that the W and WH were only very subtly different back then. And so that when Tamihana started seeing WHs in the material he was reading, he tried to incorporate it into his, his own written language as well. For example, if you look at the treaty, this Treaty of Waitangi printed copy, there's no WH at all, everything's W. And the earliest, earliest surviving letter we have of Tummy Hunters is from February 1844. So there's no WH in this letter, um, which you can see that he signs Tummy Hunter Katu. So toku ware as in fare, and then fokaro, spelt wakaro. And so this is the pattern of that Tamihana uses in his letters. The, the beauty of, of, um, of, of the letters is that there's a document of his handwriting from basically 1844 up until the year of his death, 1876. So that was the idea that came to me when, when Pirupi said he's tidied up his handwriting. Um, I just thought, well, hang on, maybe in the letters it will show me where he's used that WH everywhere, just like he does in the manuscript. So in 1858, he started trying to put the WHs in, and the word wurumu here is spelt with a WH, but most W words here are not, except for one over there, But then I think he might have got a bit of feedback, people saying, you don't spell wurumu like that with an H. And so he just went back to, like, no WHs, safer, safer option. <laughs> so... This is the 16th of July, 1866. This is crazy. This is all W. So, But then, nine days later, <laughs> everything is WH. Ngafakangutu, Fahi, Fa, Manafatu, Manafatu, instead of Manawatu, Fukaro. So he basically just went, right, he woke up one day and said, right, the W's out the door, I'm just going to do a WH everywhere. So basically for him it was an all or nothing approach. But there's, so, so that was 25th of July 1866, and unfortunately there's like a two-year gap, there's no letters in, the, in any archive I can find. 
Um, and the next letter I can find is this one from the 1st of February 1869. And he's ditched the WH. It's back to, so tafiao is that word up there. Rewi, kawana, iwi, kawana. But there's just one WH, all the wedo wedo instead of te whero whero. So it was just like a time in, his, time in his life where he was trying to just use this WH and it didn't, didn't work out for him. <laughs> Um, but it's preserved in the manuscript, and that's how we know that it was written in this time period between basically the 25th of July, 1866, and 1st of February, 1869. And one day I might find a letter from that, you know, the period in between, and we might be able to even narrow it down further. And so, yeah, George Gray's involvement was highly unlikely because by this time he and he and Tamihana were no longer close. There's a five-year gap in this period where they don't exchange a single letter. That, that's been preserved anyway. Um, so it was um, probably the way it got into Gray's collection was by way of Travers, as I explained earlier. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I won't go into the details of what Tamihana was doing at that time, but essentially he was deeply embroiled in the native land court. And, and that's what makes me think that this manuscript was written as a way of Tamihana getting his thoughts straight for the land court. Um, it was not written at the instigation of a, a European, which a lot of early manuscripts were, but rather this one was one that Tamihana did off his own bat. Yeah, this is another another reason that I think it was his own manuscript, the way he um, he had these copies of photographs of his father and of him and uh, Ruta made, and he pasted them into the front of the manuscript. Um, so after he'd completed it, he obviously regarded it as a great taonga. And um, yeah, this is just a sign for me that he really he really cherished this manuscript once he'd finished it. In terms of like the, the dating of Tepehi, there's some information in the manuscript that allows us to know to basically to the month of when Tepehi come ba came back. And this is all comes, um, comes down to a reference that Tamihana makes to a Captain Walker who was in charge of this ship called the Queen Charlotte. And due to an extraordinary um, set of circumstances, um, there was only one part of one voyage that Captain Walker was the captain of the Queen Charlotte for. And that, that was a voyage that left Sydney on the 18th of August, 1826, under a Captain Strange. And it went, this, this voyage um, went via the southern, uh, the sealing grounds to the south of New Zealand, so to the sub-Antarctic islands. And there was an incident where Captain Strange and several other crew members died. And it's a little bit mysterious how they died. But anyway, a Captain Walker was installed as the standing captain for the return voyage to Sydney. And I've searched all papers past and the Australian equivalent trove, and there's no other reference to a Captain Walker ever being in charge of the Queen Charlotte. And so this ship came by Carpeti in November 1826, and that, that was um, dropped to Pehi back to his home. So yeah, just, just in closing, I'd just like to say it has been an absolute pr privilege to spend um, the past six years absorbed in Tommy Hunter's manuscript in the world of the ancestors, um, as well as finding out about my tūpuna, Te Rauparaha. I've also found out about his son, Tommy Hunter, in the process. He was a remarkable man in his own right, and his account of his father's life is a significant achievement that deserves to take its rightful place in our natural literature, national literature. Kia ora.
来てアロハかかってらな顔はたわいるわかまたらてちなんだへえアロハ来てアロハかかってらなへアロハ来てアロハかかってらな Mai to iwi o Ngāti Raukawa. Ka hihia i etahi o mātou o te tawhānau o Tāwhiri ki te whakatū te tehi kōhatu kei runga tamihana. Mā te wā, ka hoki mai koe ki tō iwi hei whakakahai a tātou i roti tērā momo mahi. Nō reira, kanunga mihi ki a koe. Just saying to my whanaunga, um, we're going to take the opportunity for him to come up and speak to our iwi o Ngāti Raukaua to get the right version, finally. Um, and put a kōhatu on Tamihana Taropraha. That's if our relatives in Ōtaki will support that. Um, it's well overdue after all these years, and now that we have a, the real version of a, for his translation and um, the history of Taropraha and his son Tamihana. It'll be um, well worth doing that now that we're in front of the Waitangi Tribunal. And it'll、um, be really good to see the book、um, placed on the,、um, uh, the evidence of the Waitangi Tribunal because it's the, probably the best record that we're ever going to have、uh, for, for Ngati Raukoa and Ngati Tōrangatira. So, this is、um, by way of uh, uh, support for the great work that you've done. Um, yeah, Kanunga Mihi Kiakwe. Tinakwe. Tinakwe, Ross. I just want to jog you to tell us the story of the, pra- the paper in which it was written. You didn't say that, but the, on the, the water, dating issue. The,、oh, the, um, yes, okay, the, the watermark.、Um, it, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Like, it was only last year I was up at Auckland Public Library. Having a few, I was actually going in to look at the manuscript, having a few photographs taken, and、um, I was sort of posing with, with、um, a page of the manuscript poised in mid air like this, looking at the camera. And I looked across, and there was like a, a, a watermark of an of English、um, paper merchant watermark, T.H. Saunders, I think it was, and it had the year 1857, you know, in the paper, and it was like, This manuscript's been around 150 years and no one sort of noticed that. But it's funny, I mean, you know, I'd looked at it multiple times, but I'd never like, looked at it through light like that.、Um, so this, this、um, basically goes to prove finally, really, that George Gray had nothing to do with the creation of this manuscript because he was in South Africa in 
Um, even if there was a delay of a few years, Gray didn't come back until about, I think it was late 1861. Um, yeah, so it's just, it was really quite gratifying to, to see this um, hard evidence that, um, yeah, it basically was no way this was um, done in Taraupurraha's lifetime and in no way was it just a, a dictation either. So, kia ora parapi. And tēnā rā koe te whananga te kenehi, um, I would be delighted to um, assist in any way I can and that, that sounds like a fantastic um, plan. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Tēnā koe, tēnā koe, Ross, tēnā koutou katoa. Tēnā koutou e ngā whanaunga o Ngāti Raukaua, Ngāti Tuaranga, tēnā tēnā koe piripi. Tēnei tū he tū ki te mihi atu kia koe, Ross, mō mahi rangatira mō mātou. I he uri tēnei nō Waitohi, Mātene te whiwhi, Moi tana tamahine a ruiha i roto Ngāpohi, ko mātou tēnei. I want to stand up on behalf of those of us that have done some training in archives research, archival research and an encouragement that's, you know, in this week where Stuff Media have done some reviewing of the work that they've done over the last couple of centuries and in many ways, this is what you're doing, is reviewing the interpretation of our taonga, our writings um, over the last couple of century. E mihi atu ana ki a koe. Tēnā koutou. Nō reira, hei whakakapitanga mā tātou. Ko whakairia te tapu, ko a wātea mai te ara, Ki a tūruki whakataha ai, ki a tūruki whakataha ai. Haumie, huie, tāiki. Kia ora tātou.